Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Welcome and thank you for joining me on another episode of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. This episode will be the first of a two-part episode, and my guests I am so pleased to have are John Green of Blackstar Real Estate Partners and Joe Carroll of Cross River, his own company. Both gentlemen are Black real estate professionals who came at the real estate industry through various other various tracks that we will talk about. Both grew up in the South. Joe grew up in Florida and John grew up in Virginia, but traveled around as a military in a military family growing up. We talk about that. And then John went on to, to college at UVA and uh, studied engineering. Joe went to Florida A&M and also studied the technical side and civil engineering. So they both came at it from a technical standpoint. They started their careers, one in consulting Joe, and John went on to uh, actually the media business and actually went to Goldman Sachs first and then the media business, and then decided to, both of them decided to go to graduate business school. And so they met at Harvard. Actually, Joe was ahead of John and met him while he was there. So they both went to Harvard Business School. John and had a joint degree in the Kennedy School, and Joe had a joint law degree as well at Harvard. So extremely strong educational background, and they're just very well-spoken and intelligent guys. So they talk a little bit about that, and we get into their career path, getting to where they are today. And this is all uh, part one. And then for the next part, next episode, which will be in a couple of weeks, we'll be talking about the social issues today and being black men in America and in the real estate business. So they talk about some advice for young people coming in as minorities going to work in our business and what they should think about. And then we talk more generically about their perspective and their philosophies. So I am extremely happy about this both of these uh, episodes, and I hope you enjoy them. Thank you, and we'll be talking to you soon. Without further ado, here is John and Joe. Good morning, John and Joe. Welcome to the podcast today, and I really appreciate you guys joining us for Icons of DC Area Real Estate today. And today, I'd like to kind of talk about both of your backgrounds. This is a first for me to do a dual interview, but in light of uh, the situation and the pandemics and the and the pandemic situation, as well as the social issues that are in the news today, I wanted to get both of your perspectives. Just as a sidelight, I, I did talk about this in the intro, but both of you are currently in a mastermind group with me, which I really appreciate and enjoy. 
And uh, I've learned a lot about you. So I know you guys a little bit better than I know other people I've interviewed. So this is going to help a little bit in, in our discussion. So keep it free flowing. The reason I brought both of you on is because I want it to be conversational as best as possible and not an interview per se. So if you want to interject, feel free to do that if you have questions or comments and uh, we'll go from there. So what I thought we'd do is one at a time, I'll ask you uh, about your, your biographical situation currently, what you're doing, and then we go into uh, a little bit of your origin stories. So John, if you want to kick off, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what you're up to right now. Sure. Good morning. Thanks for having me, John. Uh, appreciate, uh, appreciate the opportunity and, and uh, happy to join. I am the managing principal of Blackstar Real Estate Partners. We are a real estate investment management company focused um, both on uh, high impact urban and high density suburban projects, as well as uh, having recently launched a social impact debt fund that's focused specifically on single family strategies. We're very much in a startup and growth phase. I have a team of uh, four full time, uh, four full time employees, and, and we're excited to uh, to be active and uh, adapting to the current environment. That's great. Joe? I also want to thank you uh, for inviting me today, uh, John. It's a pleasure to talk to John and John today and um, just be on the horn with you guys today. I'm Joe Carroll, and um, I am managing principal of Cross River, which is a, a sort of multifaceted company. But for the sake of today, it invests in real estate. Um, as well, about uh, $450 million worth of real estate under uh, management in Texas, Florida, and D.C. And I'll get into that a little bit further, how I got in those three locations. But D.C. is home. And, um, you know, I've, um, the, the purpose of the, of the organization is to be diverse. And I've been doing, been really focused on diversifying our investments and uh, the way that we approach the real estate market. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate mm-hmm. it. Thank you, John. So let's now dive back into your origin stories, guys. So one at a time again, I'll go back to John. And John, tell me about uh, where you grew up and uh, a little bit about your family and influences that your parents and, and siblings and friends and environment had on you as you were growing up. Sure. I grew up uh, as a bit of a military brat. My father was uh, uh, spent his entire career in the army, and so we traveled um, a bit, but not a not a ton by uh, by, by military standards. Uh, my family only moved domestically. My father uh, was uh, sometimes based internationally, and so we kind of stayed put, you know, in general when uh, when that happened. So uh, I was fortunate in that um, I lived in one place uh, before starting uh, school, one place. Uh, for elementary and middle, and then uh, then, then separately um, for high school, one, one other place. So all, all of elementary school for me was spent in um, an area called Clarksville, Tennessee. Uh, we'd moved from uh, from Hawaii to, to to get there, so oh. so a lot of my childhood memories uh, were um, were focused and concentrated. Were, were there. you born? Were you born in uh, in Hawaii, John? No, my, my family, my extended family, is from Southeast Virginia, and my father was actually uh, based in Korea when I was when I was born, and so I was born a month early, and so he uh, unfortunately wasn't uh, wasn't there until a little uh, until a oh, little later. So, so I was 
I was born in Virginia, and then we then we moved uh, then we moved out to uh, to Hawaii. And uh, so for me, uh, after we after finishing up middle school, uh, my father retired, and we moved back to Southeast Virginia. Both of my parents are from Norfolk, uh, Virginia. So we moved to Virginia Beach. I spent uh, all of my high school years there before going to college. So um, so for me, that was uh, was. Those were pretty easy breaks. I, I didn't have the sort of typical military experience of transitioning from school to school uh, and spending high school where my, my um, extended family was, was was really a great experience. I have a really large extended family. My mom's one of nine. My dad's one of seven. Uh, wow. So I have lots of uh, lots and lots of first cousins. And, and most of my family is concentrated around that uh, that, that Tidewater area of, uh, of Virginia. So tell me about growing up in, uh, as a military brat. I mean, you know, what, what's it like to go from one place to another as a kid? And how did that influence you at all? And what was your uh, friendships like growing up with, with other, were they mostly military kids? I assume you were at military schools, you know, military honored elementary and high schools, or were they, you know, general public schools? Yeah, no. So, so I, I would say, you know, as, as military, as, as stories of military uh, kids, my my story was pretty easy. It went to general public schools and because I had clean breaks and very few moves, you know, not, not a lot of transitions. So, um, so it's very typical. And in that respect, you know, I would say because there were big military bases in each of the places where I live, you know, there were, there was a concentration of people around me, but, uh, always, um, you know, in sort of a, you know, a very general environment. So where we lived in Tennessee was close to Fort Campbell. Where my father was based, huge base and huge employment, a huge employer in that area. So, so there was a fair share, but but de- definitely that that didn't dominate my um you know my base of friends. I would say you know in terms of the, the sort of attitudes um you know that it uh, helped to to foster you know I think my, my my father's orientation and I would say my parents' orientation is that um you know you we don't get out work, you know, there's, um, there's some things, you can control, there's some things that you can't, but you know, your level of efforts never in question. And so, you know, so, so, so that was just an immutable sort of aspect. And I think it's, um, you know, it's part of my personality today. How many siblings do you have, John? I'm the oldest of three. Uh-huh. And were you the leader of the family uh, of your, of your sisters or brothers? And was yeah. I, uh, <laughs> That's yeah, a question, John. I'm pretty sure they would agree. I'm, I'm the oldest, but we also, um, you know, have um, you know a fair amount of age between us. So I'm, I'm five years older than my brother, nine than my sister, and so, um, so, so yeah, I would say as a, a, a de facto uh, sort of leader, for whatever that's worth. So you have uh, any unique experiences growing up at all that you can share? You know, with it being in the military environment at all, or even outside of that. I mean, despite that, uh, unique experiences because of the military. You know, it's um, you know from time to time we got to do some uh, some cool things on the base that uh, that others may not have had as part of their experience. So I remember, so um, the 101st Airborne Division is uh, is based at Fort Campbell, and so when my father was based overseas, they had a Sometimes they have events for, um, you know, for the for the children. So I remember going to uh, to do some of the things that they did in air assault school. So I went uh, rappelling off of um, off of a fifty foot tower. You know, that was part of their training. You know, it's uh, they they showed us how to do it, and then you know gave us an opportunity 
and most folks didn't really take up the opportunity, but I, I was, uh, I got pretty comfortable pretty quickly. So I went off the side that has a face and then off the side with no face. Uh, Whoa. So, How old so, were you at the time? Ah, let's see. I was probably in middle school, I think. Sixth grade, maybe, I think. Fifth, fifth or sixth grade. So, uh, you know, I, I'll say they're, they're effective at, at starting their recruiting early. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. So then the high school years, uh, any good influences there or down in Norfolk? Yeah. So, so high school for me was in Virginia Beach. And um, yeah, high school uh, for me is really when I started to figure out the subjects that I, that I really like. You know, I, um, I, I'd say, you know, I, I had a sense of the things that I liked before, but so much foundation, you know, built uh, prior to that. For me, I, I really, you know, started to, to develop more than a, you know, a, a, more of a passion for science and math and, you know, kind of, you know, once you get to the point where you're doing kind of applied physics and those sorts of things, you know, they, they really start to they really start to merge. So I didn't have a good sense of what I would do professionally at that point, but I really academically, you know, do some of the subjects that I, that I liked a lot. So, so high school was, um, you know, it was great for me in, in, in that respect. Where I went to high school was, uh, was socially a very different environment than where I had gone to elementary and middle school. So there was, there was some of that transition as well. So was it, I assume, was it an integrated school that you were in? You know, pretty, you know, as far as multicultural? Yeah, yeah. Uh, integrated socioeconomically, ethnically, racially. Yes, I would say, you know, my, the, school that I, the schools that I went to for elementary and middle school, much more so than the school that I went to for high school. So, so demographically, you know, there was, um, you know, there, there, there was a, a bit of a shift there, but still diverse and um, interesting in their own ways. So was there AP environment? I mean, could you go to take advanced placement and that kind of, you know, you know, where you were strong, you could, they had the ability to do that in your school then as far as, you know, because you went on to the University of Virginia. So <laughs> you don't get in there easily, uh, yeah. even if you're in state. So you had to have some, some ability there, I assume, in high school. Sure. Yeah. So, um, so, so definitely AP courses, things of that sort, and definitely, um, I mean, Virginia Beach has, uh, you know, uh, has a very good school district, but also, you know, there's some unique things around it that you can take advantage of, you know, so if I'm not mistaken, maybe Joe and I both did it, but I, I did an internship, for instance, with uh, NASA my, after my junior year of high school, and uh, for cool. me, that was one that was um, maybe 45 minutes away from my house, and so... Um, very unique experience, but you know you could take advantage of the fact that those sorts of uh, of opportunities were were nearby. So so definitely AP courses, but also I would say you know some great experiences to complement those. And then so you went on to UVA, and were you in the engineering school there, or, or uh, the the business school, or where, where did you focus? And John, John Cole, thanks for um, pulling out that out of John because you you would think he was a, a dull kid and <laughs> in the back of the class throwing spitballs or something. Thank you for thinking on that. But go ahead. <laughs> Joe and I met later in school, so 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 he knows I I, I was exactly that kid. I, I, <laughs> I was in, in the engineering school at uh, at UVA, and, and really, what I was trying to decide when I um, when I came was whether I would be focused on pure science or applied science. So um, in high school, I, I really my favorite course was was physics, and really? 
physics and AP physics. And, and, and I just, it, it just made a lot of sense. And I it integrated a lot of things that I was really interested in. And, um, and so I was trying to just decide whether I would do, you know, kind of whether I would study physics or, 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 or a pure science like that, or uh, something that was applying that science and technology related uh, disciplines. So, you know, more of the sort of, sort of pure engineering. And my experience at UVA, you know, sort of cascaded to, to expand my interest to become progressively less 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 technically focused. Um, so uh, through a series of internships and classes and great experiences, um, you know, it just really expanded my worldview. So, you know, I had an internship early on, which was uh, actually back home at uh, Electron, or I'm sorry, at CBAF at that time, uh, so an accelerator facility. So that was doing, you know, pure, pure physics research with, you know, just a brilliant team of, of scientists, which I, I enjoyed and then um, progressively became increasingly interested in ways to apply that science as opposed to kind of the, you know, the, the, the pure research that I was doing um, initially. So went from uh, science uh, to, you know, kind of more focus on broader ways to apply technology. And then I actually minored in technology management and policy, considering how technology and those sorts of things are used kind of in the broader uh, environment. And then I, at UVA, I started taking, um, so they, they kind of keep the engineers sequestered from the, um, <laughs> from the good and decent folks of the, <laughs> the College of Arts and Sciences. You know, we're physically uh, separated, but, you know, we, we don't have nearly as many elective classes. And so you, you have to be pretty judicious about it. And so I started getting interested in these, uh, at first, these um, econ classes. And it just, uh, for me, uh, I developed a lot of passion around that. It was, it made a lot of sense to me as, as really as, as kind of the physics of money, uh, so to speak, but it was really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it, it made sense, but it, but it was interesting because it was, it wasn't so much that the laws were immutable because of nature in the same ways as physics, but because of it's of, of, of human behavior. And so those behavioral aspects of economics, you know, really, and the, the contours of that really, really began to fascinate me. A lot of the considerations, you know, related to one another, um, you know, particularly well, but it, a lot of why things are predictably the ways that they, um, uh, that they are, you know, says a lot more about, you know, the way that, that, that we are individually and collectively, and, and, and that fascinated me. So those same sorts of technical interests became applied to kind of economics and business. And I, then I started doing some internships that were related to consulting. I think um, I consulted at a company that Joe, I think, uh, interned and worked at Anderson Consulting for a while that eventually became Accenture, you know, first doing like kind of technical projects, then uh, strategy uh, sorts of projects, and then working on broad sorts of policy. And I think, you know, kind of um, the aha moment for me was my senior year of college. I, um, I worked on, I had to write a thesis for both my major and my minor. And so to try to minimize work, I, I related them to one another. And I was working on a project related to the, um, to the nuclear test ban treaty, which was um, and, and, um, topical at that point. It's a comprehensive uh, test ban treaty um, during the um, the time that Clinton was in office. And so we worked on this project with DARPA, developing this big technical solution. I worked with a small team of folks doing that. And it took the entire year. And, and we came up with this program around a testing regime and we worked with just a brilliant, brilliant team of, of uh, scientists that was a part of a global monitoring and testing uh, regime. And so that time forming a solution around that and writing about it. And then on the 
on the minor, on the, the um, I wrote about the policy itself. And, and what I, I quickly realized was despite the vast resources being deployed into this, you know, huge technical solution and the brilliant minds that, that were spending, you know, lots of time and, and resources there, that ultimately it was really flawed premise and that ultimately it didn't really matter a whole lot because the policy itself was so problematic that it, it was never going to serve its intended purpose in, in quite the way mm-hmm. that that was really going to affect change. And it really helped me to realize that I, where I really wanted to apply my efforts um, were in the places where, um, where it would have its highest impact. I didn't want to spend my time toiling in the salt mines and working as hard as, uh, as, as, as we were towards something that, that was ill-fated. And so uh, trying to figure out you know, where my efforts could be best directed to maximize the sort of impact that I, um, I wanted to have you know, was, was kind of an epiphany for me during, uh, during undergrad. Let me tie that back to your upbringing with your father a little bit and your parent, your mother as well. So did they instill this need to get things done in you? <laughs> I mean, to be an executor as opposed to a researcher and reader? I mean, make things happen. Is that kind of the orientation that you had a little bit as a child? Yeah, I would say, you know, my, my parents were actually... Um, you know, I had a pretty relaxed attitude. You know, it's um, the, I, I like to think that I made it easy, but I think, you know, really they were, they were just, um, you know, pretty easy going in those respects. You know, like I said, some, some things were, you know, some, some, some things were, were, were non-negotiable. You, you were going to work hard. You were going to do your part. You know, there were, you know, no shortage of things, you know, kind of, you know, not only at school, but, you know, beyond school that, that you were going to do because, you know, everyone works hard and, and, and contributes. But, but a, a lot less on, um, you know, kind of the considerations around, you know, how you direct those efforts. It was just that you, you know, you're going, you're going to, you're going to work hard. You, you, you can choose those things, find your passion, of course. But so, so, so the, the short answer is, is yeah, I would say that they, they tried a lot less aggressively to, to shape that. But I would say over time, various members of my family influenced um, the ways that I started to develop my system of values and priorities and, and how I would spend my time and efforts. So then uh, you moved into your professional life after UVA. Is that, and how did that happen? I had um, just, uh, I had a couple of really great internships after my sophomore and junior years. And so going into my senior year, I felt like I was, I was pretty likely to do either of two paths, to either do the sort of consulting uh, path that I had, um, had done for the last couple of years, or perhaps to do something slightly more technical, you know, so to work at, in a more of an engineering sort of role at a, at, a, at, at a high-tech company in a role that kind of, you know, bridged the sort of engineering and, and, and business gap in some ways. And my only criteria going into my senior year was that I, I didn't want to work in New York and I didn't want to do investment banking. I had met someone and, and had been turned off um, by it um, early on. So, of course, I, I moved to New York and did investment banking. <laughs> I was, uh, I was um, I'm one of these rare people that actually got sold on the sell day. You know, it was a, a good friend who I had uh, done a consulting internship with you know, had, um, had moved on to a role with, uh, with Goldman Sachs and, um, you know, we'd stayed in contact and, and she, you know, really pressed the point that, you know, I know you and you'd love it here. You know, it's a great environment and, you know, here's what I like about it and you should really give it a, give it a hard look. And so it was the only investment bank that I had 
submitted uh, an application to, and um, and I hadn't really taken enough time to, to really understand what they did until right before the final interview. Like right right before each of the interviews, I learned more about it, but I didn't uh, I, I didn't I didn't have a you know very complete perspective about what they did until um, the night before the final interviews, and so. Um, which was great. I, I didn't know enough to be intimidated by the process. And so yeah, for, and it shows you're a good crammer as well. What's that? You're a good crammer as well. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> the, the, the other side of what engineering prepares you for. So, <laughs> so, so for me, um, start, starting at Goldman was, uh, was a fantastic experience. I, a big part of what sold me during those cell days was, you know, they have uh, this very intentional approach to building out what's a tremendous uh, alumni network. They're very sober about the fact that not everyone who starts there will finish their career there and they embrace that fact. So especially through their analyst program and, and uh, which is, was, was a track that I, I joined out of undergrad. So they, they work really hard and embrace the fact that you can be a significant contributor, that it's a fantastic experience and that they're going to, they're going to train you and give you a lot of tools and put you in a lot of settings that are, unique for, you know, for, for that phase of your career. And so, so those things all really resonated with me and those are, were skills that you could apply anywhere. So, so that, that was very much, you know, consistent with my experience. I worked in the um, communications media and entertainment group, which also worked with high tech and later merged with high tech. So I think today it's the technology media and um, TMT technology media and telecom. <laughs> uh, today, so I did investment banking with uh, with clients in those sectors. Um, you work, you, you know, had a chance to work with uh, tremendous uh, clients, usually C-suite clients with complicated problems, whether they were capital markets related, strategic, or or others, with a team of really smart and engaged folks who were uh, were pursuing that. So, you, I, for me, I developed a lot of um, skills around that. You know, the technical skills, the financial skills, etc., and um, uh, you know, just a, a more Practical perspective on the way the business is executed. So, so for me, that was um, that was fantastic. Um, after that, I uh, moved to uh, a role with uh, with Viacom, which had at that point recently ac- acquired Black Entertainment Television Networks, um, which was um, based in DC, and it was interesting in that BET hadn't had a, a formal business development effort since the late '90s. At that point, I joined in 2002. The role was focused on everything that uh, revolved around their non-core business, principally. So, aside from the the, the television network aspects, things like uh, I worked on projects including film distribution and publishing and uh, fashion and 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 uh, all, all sorts of things that just just were cool and not not necessarily core to the business, but that they were trying to build out and develop. Um, I also was responsible for rolling out the video on demand service uh, nationally for, for BET, which was a cool experience because I got to lead the effort, integrate the efforts of, of I guess, seven different departments internally. That was mostly because it was pretty clear early on that that was not going to be a revenue generating function early on. And so no one was, no one, no one else was raising their hand to, uh, to do it. So having a bit of a technical background as well as kind of a practical business background was an asset there. So uh, I know you shortly thereafter went on to Harvard business school. So I'm going to stop you there, John, because uh, Joe also went to Harvard Business School as well. So I want to go now, shift gears and go to Joe, 
and uh, let him take his turn on his family and into the educational experience that he had and where he grew up. First and all that stuff. This feels like a superhero movie, you know, <laughs> how the X-Men came together because you're like the origins and then we get to Harvard and we know each other and, you know, without power. <laughs> I, I appreciate what you're building up, John. I'm sorry for taking away the punchline, but I, I appreciate that. Uh, so, no problem. Um, so I'm from uh, Jacksonville, Florida. I was born and raised there and was there until I graduated from high school. I um, was raised in a village, really. Uh, my parents and my four grandparents sort of you know, I never knew a babysitter. I never knew, you know, if my parents weren't there, I was with one of my grandparents. And each day I went to one of their houses before my parents got home and, um, you know, with my cousins. Unlike John, I actually have a very small family, which I didn't think was small because I was around people all the time. But <laughs> when I came out to the world, I'm like, oh, everybody's family's not small like this. So I have, I have uh, two first cousins. Right. <laughs> You're an and only child? As a child, right. So so my 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 other cousins, I they kind of act like first cousins, but as I grew up, I realized they were actually second cousins and third cousins and fourth cousins, because you have to go so far out to get us a, a family anywhere the size of John's family. I'll have to go out to like the tenth cousin, like, oh okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what that did is uh, you know it created a, a, a curated environment, right? So, so it was very focused on us. You know, everybody was rooting for us, right? Um, my sister, my brother, myself, and my other two cousins. You know, What did your parents do, John, uh, Joe? So my dad's a postal worker, and my mom is a logistics, logistics expert. She worked for a trucking company, trucking and uh, maritime transportation company growing up, um, when I, while I was growing up. Neither of them went to college. And so that very much influenced sort of how uh, we sort of came to being. I don't, I don't remember my parents ever saying that we were supposed to go to college, but it was just became an expectation. I don't, I don't ever remember that. But they created the type of environment that we were bound to go to college. Um, so, so, so I, I always think, you know, people always ask my parents because my, 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 my siblings are very successful um, more so than even me. Um, and, you know, more so, way more so. <laughs> so they, Tell me about your siblings. Tell me about your siblings. Tell me about your siblings. Oh, my, my, my sister's an investment banker um, in New York. And my brother is a geriatrician in LA. To sort of have the, the gumption to, to raise children like that is something I'm very proud of. And so I don't mean it to like up myself, but really to up them to say, okay, wow, you kind of put me in this position. But um, what they did is, like I said, they created a cocoon between my grandparents. And, and so they all kind of worked as a team. If you did something, then it would come back to you twice, you know, or three times. Because like, I heard you did this over your other grandma's house. I heard you did this at grandma's house. So it's like over and over. So you learn less like three times from three different perspectives. So, <laughs> Were your siblings older than you? Uh, I, I'm in the middle. 
So mm -hmm. don't ask me a question because it, it's very confusing with us. But <laughs> I would say by far the leader. So growing up, I think the biggest thing uh, my parents did, although they were very busy, uh, they always worked a lot um, in order to provide for us. They you know, made sure at key times they were there. So I, like I said, I don't remember them saying, go and do your homework, Joe. And I was, unlike John, I was actually kind of on the edge kid. I was kind of, you kind of get that from my personality, like kind of talkative. I would kind of go around the room and distract other people and get in trouble. <laughs> so so um, one of my good friends always tells, tells a story about us being in junior high and how, I, you had to move around in cohorts and I was so bad that they they moved me out of the cohort. So I went the reverse to everybody else. So I wasn't in anybody's cohorts. I had different people each class. Like I was older because I would be so disruptive to some class. <laughs> but I thank God for this because I, and kind of go to a serious note, I know that this phenomenon happens in schools today, right? So I was a I was a brighter kid, I was a distracting kid, but those teachers just got together and said, this is what we need to do for Joe because we know he's smart, we know he, he's able to do these things, but he's very distracting, he's ridiculous, you know? <laughs> so instead of like sending me home, they didn't do that. And I juxtaposed that to my, I have two first cousins, who didn't have a similar experience, right? So they were just as disruptive as I was, but you know, their teachers treat them completely different. Like they were suspended and they were, you know, sent to special schools and all this stuff. And they took a whole different track than I did. And so that rings in my head constantly about my parents' role in that, the, the teachers, the randomness of the teachers that I got versus the teachers that they had. And the one thing I would add is um, when I first came to school, um, I, I, I had I had you can you probably can't tell now because I talk so much and I'll get to that in a second. But I actually had a speech impediment. So I had speech delay. Um, so I was in special ed classes when I first started school, like kindergarten, first grade. And I always tell people this story. I remember the day when I was moved from one track to the other. And that may have been the most pivotal day of my life. I had no idea. I was in first grade. I was aware of it. I was in first grade, like, okay. I was literally in a class with kindergartners and first graders. That's that's the level I was on. So I was in a class with kindergartners and first graders. And I remember them coming into class and they were talking, the teachers were kind of mumbling. And they were like, okay, Joe, this person, this person, we're going to move them to this other class. Right. And that moment quite possibly changed my life. Right. So I could have been in the slower level of first grade with the kindergartners for the rest of my life and been tracked that way. And I went to this class, this class and it was, uh, it was, uh, miss, yeah, miss Heisen's class. I think it was. And the kids were completely different. First of all, they were looking at me crazy. You know, I come to door, they're like, like, look, you know, like John remembers, I mean, I'm sure you do John, you know, you have your little backpack and you're just like, look around, see where you're going to sit. They're like, where are these kids coming from? You know, like they had already formed. It was like probably second half of the year. They already formed their little groups and they were just like, and, and then I was just there. And then from then on, it just kind of picked up. So, so that's, I would say that was a very unique experience 
And the, the fact that you remember that. Yeah, to be like having, six years old, remember that because it was yes. just like, oh, okay. And I, like I said, I remember being like in my mind, like I said, part of it is because I couldn't communicate very well in my mind, seeing that people were on tracks. Like I, I remember visualizing that like, okay, this is, this is my lot in life. This is where I am. This is how it is. And then some, one day somebody came in and picked me out. So every time I tell that story, I'm like afraid, like not afraid, but like you'll send this, I, I, this podcast out and the teacher will be like, I was the one that picked you, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like it, it could have been a coin toss who knows how the teachers decided who would go to the other class but you never found out why that happened I never found out why but I suspect um, because in third grade something strange happened as well because by then I was special education in two directions I was special education because of my test scores and because of my speech impediment. And people didn't know what to do with me then either because I couldn't communicate very well, but I was testing. At least I, I, they knew I could read. I knew I could understand math, but I wasn't communicating very well. So, so I think that may have started showing up early. And like I said, that's what I'm saying, both at first grade, third grade, and seventh grade, there were teacher interventions to be like, okay, this is a special case. I'm going to take the time to figure out how we treat this special case, right? And when 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 teachers don't do that, results are completely different. Um, I want to talk a little later on. I want to talk with both of you guys about these kinds of situations that affected your lives early on and how that's affected you going forward. And then also comparing your situation with other contemporaries of yours, particularly in the black community. So we'll get into that a little bit later. So keep going, Joe. Then um, in, in seventh grade, like, so my sister, I said, was a leader. So she went to a school called Stan College Preparatory School, which is a public school, but it's a prep school, nationally ranked prep school. And so she went First, and I think I was kind of like, man, I could go, I could not go. <laughs> but she was resolute that I was going to go. <laughs> like she, she made sure her little brother was taken care of, whereas I was kind of like laissez-faire, like, I can go, I could not go. And when I got there, it was a complete shift because first through fifth grade were all black schools. Sixth grade Duval County was on a desegregation order. So busing cre- created integration. And then high school and above was through a magnet program. They were starting to play around with magnets and figure out sure. how to create in that way. So, I mean, that's an important thing for our generation as John Prize aware too. Like that transition from like old solutions, integration to new solutions to where we are now and whether they worked or not, you know, we can get to that later. But, <laughs> but at least then prep, which had a, a, a huge history for blacks in Jacksonville because James Weldon Johnson was the first principal of Stanton Preparatory School. So, and he wrote the Negro National Anthem for, really? but they changed it to a madness school. So there was this kind of like weird conflict where, 
you know, the school is now 70% white and 30% black. And, you know, how does that all work? And my grandparents went there. So they're like, oh, so you go to Stanton Prep. Like, that's different from Stanton, old Stanton. That's what they would call it. But that legacy really made me feel like I needed to step up at school, you know, to represent that sort of what, what was in the soil of that school, what was in the in the walls of that school, what was in the ethos of that school for Black, Black American achievement. So just working hard there, um, really um, over time stepping up, because when I came in in seventh grade, I, I would say I was a little shyer in eighth grade. And by ninth grade, I had become a leader. So I ended up being president of my class my senior year. And that was very different as well, because once again, it was 80% white, 20% Black or 70, 30, or, 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 or something of that nature. And, you know, just being comfortable in that environment, I think was a triumph. And uh, I think it served me well since. It really, it really has served me well. So to come from all black environment, then to an uh, integrated environment. And then when I went to college, I went to a black environment again, because um, I went to Florida A&M. And there, I think I got, you know, you said there's an origin story, but I really got my superpowers there. <laughs> really got why, it. Why did you choose that school, uh, Joe? So that's interesting. And I think about it all the time. And, and John um, and I had a conversation about not too long ago, and I'm not going to reveal the whole conversation, but <laughs> just like schools that had like strong African-American ethos, whether they are large, predominantly white institutions or HBCUs. So I strictly looked at schools that had that ethos. So there are some schools I just would not consider because I didn't feel like they had an ethos, whether they were in the minority or the majority. So my sister, once again, was already at FAMU. <laughs> like I said, she basically led my life. She's the leader. Like she's definitely a leader. She was already at FAMU and I was determined not to go to FAMU because she was there. I'm like, I'm tired of being her shadow. I, I'm always behind her two years. So I'm just not going to do it. But when I went to visit, so, so I had visited like, I think Georgia Tech, Lane, Yale, like just a, a couple other schools that were, were, were wooing me or schools I were interested in. And I got to that campus and it was the most incredible thing I'd ever seen. Like, I cannot, you know, and, and I don't know if, um, if non-Black people can kind of feel it, understand it, because there's always in, you know, this whole fish tank of a lot of uh, non-White people being around. But when it's just all Black and you just see, like, complete excellence, like, in every direction, you're like, okay, this is where I want to be. So <laughs> did, did you so look I, at did you look day, at other? And like, no, I'm not going here. I'm just, I'm just going this tour because you know I need to go somewhere else. I, I need to go to Georgia Tech or something. And I got there and I was like, this is the place for me. And it was stupendous from then on. Joe, so. did you look at, uh, did you look at Howard or any other HBCUs? So I looked at Howard. I looked at uh, North Clay and T. I looked at Morehouse. Trying to remember. This is a long time ago, John Cole. <laughs> I understand. Yes. And 
I visited um, Howard and I visited Morehouse. I didn't visit North Plain Tea. Um, but like I said, it may have just been, just like I said with the teachers, it may have just been a random day I went to FAMU. That FAMU was just on blast. It was bright and sunny. There were thousands of kids out. You know, the tour was excellent. The class discussion that I went on was like just spot on. Because I went to a very technical class where people were talking about like physics. And then I went to a very like, like an African American history class where people were talking about like uh, ancient African uh, civilizations. And I was just like, this is it. Like, this is the best of all worlds. <laughs> That's cool. That's you can't cool. beat this. So, so, so I ended up going there. And like John, I became an engineer. And like John, I was isolated because at school, <laughs> I, I, I kind of got this ethos of how school would be. Then they're like, oh, that's your school over there. I'm like, it's way over there. Like, I don't get to mix with the College of Arts and Sciences, business, you know, you know, uh, architecture. Everybody else is on the main campus. And, and uh, engineering school was like probably a 10 minute drive away, but like probably like a 20, a 30 minute walk away. So then it was just incumbent on me. I had to work harder to be a part of that ethos, to be It's kind of what John was saying. I had to work harder in that way. Engineering is a big, is a big part of that school, isn't it? Because usually the AMs, A&Ms are typically, you know. Yeah, they're right? Like I said, like, yeah. so they share, which is a whole other dynamic. They share an engineering school at Florida State. That's why it's off campus. It's not on Florida State's campus. It's not on Florida A&M's campus. There's a whole nother, you can do a whole podcast just on that, like the whole, like trying to even integrate at, and that's what I'm saying. So I think anybody born in the late 70s, and I'm not aging John, my friend here, he, he, he's probably born in 88, but, um, you know, <laughs> born in, in, in the late 70s was in this sort of transition where everybody was trying to figure out what integration would look like, right? So it's kind of transition from busing to like sort of, you know, school choice, sort of like right, right. like vouchers and all this stuff was being tried and it was even being tried at the secondary level. I mean, I'm sure John can tell you like how UVA attracted African-American students. Like it was, everybody was testing it out. Like how, how could they figure this out? And we're the product of that. And I, and I think, Looking around the country, it produced a pretty good product. At least in my in my in my view, it may not have been enough of a product, but it produced a good product. And to abandon many of those ways of getting at it so early in the process is kind of weird to me. Like I feel like those doors have closed, right? So you know, just just really trying to revisit those things and, and pick the good from the bad because anything has a bad part, but just picking the good from the bad. So I know you want to talk about that later. I'm sorry, John, I'm, I'm getting you off. Yeah, so uh, you, you majored in engineering and, uh, and then how did you, did you go into work after that? After yes, well, I went straight to Accenture, which John referenced. And there, because it was 1999, and, you know, it was time to party like 1999. Everybody was partying in technology, right? So I was like, I'm going to Accenture. I'm not going to do this civil engineering stuff. That stuff is too slow. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to go and work for, you know, 
I don't know, some of the weird companies that were going, you know, closets.com or whatever was going on at that time. <laughs> <laughs> I thought a good way to do it was to work for Accenture because they were, you know, dealing with all startups, trying to get companies sort of up and running in technology as well. Um, so I was ended up being in the financial services area. And unlike John, I have not kept track of what that's called today because they changed the name even when I was there every six months. But, you know, so, so it was like I was in this group and I was tasked at bringing different financial companies up to technology. And that, at that time, it was like getting a website, you know, <laughs> getting somewhere somebody could check their account. Like it was like really simple stuff, but it was like moving heaven and earth. I remember working with Jamie Dimon. Um, when he was down at Bank One, I think it was called at the time or something of that nature. And his like vision, I remember like all the people, we're the consultants, all this is going to do what Jamie Dimon says. But all the people were like, what? Like banking on the internet? Like, what is he talking about? Like, you know, like this is just like, no, it cannot possibly be secure. And people got to come to the branch. This is like hurting cats. So it was good to kind of be in that, that sort of, um, milieu or time to for that transition and then you know the crash happened right the crash and then you know Accenture laid off all these people people furloughed and you know all all these people who were like oh you know this company's valued at a billion dollars they'll be able to pay us yet they weren't making any money like went poof yeah like, oh, so then I was kind of happy being financial services. I was like, thank you, Jamie Dimon. At least the banks didn't go anywhere, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> so I stayed there. And then I, I really, I really wanted to go to law school even before I went to business school because I had already, already taken the LSAT. I knew I was going to law school. So I had a plan. But having that business, because I was like, okay, either I'm going to become like a billionaire CEO you know, at classes.com or I'm going to, you know, go to law school. So when that all happened, I was like, okay, but I added a twist to it. I was like, oh, okay, I'll go to business school as well because I enjoy this stuff. And so that's the end of my origin story. So now I can combine with John at Harvard. So, so you had to put um, being a billionaire CEO on, on temporary hold? Is that, is, is that <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> That's right, John. Thanks, Joe, for, for that update on your background uh, uh, through Accenture and your transition to Harvard. So now I want to switch over to John. And John, tell me about how you uh, evolved from Goldman Sachs into Harvard Business School. Sure. Well, so uh, so while I was at Goldman, I, um, you know, in, in my personal life, um, it was interesting. I, I lived in Brooklyn. And um, I made my first real estate investment. I I, um, uh, I bought a small co-op um, that I, I lived in, which um, super convenient. It was um, ten minutes door to door. It was a location that uh, seemed like it was rapidly changing, and I, I um, and partially because I was an owner, I, I was especially interested in what was what was going on. I hadn't specifically intended to be an owner. Uh, Goldman had a unique policy at that time. I guess New York has a culture around paying. Um, tenant brokers for, uh, for, for renting. And so, so I used my allowance from Goldman to cover my 
down payment and closing costs. And I, I, I purchased my place, uh, which was a super cheap place in Brooklyn, but it was at the at the nexus of a lot of change there. Forest City was making a huge investment into downtown. So I kind of caught the real estate bug and the sort of de facto way because at the in the midst of driving so much social change in that that area that historically had been a very different environment, this uh, Metro Tech project was kind of at the center of bringing a lot of jobs and there was a lot of real estate development happening and it was changing the ways that people lived and worked and interacted together. And, and I, I became really interested in how that process was being curated. And so I wanted to get more involved and to, to learn how to understand, you know, the, um, you know, the, the drivers of that. So, so, so business school was, you know, had, had, had uh, always been interesting. Um, and I was trying to decide whether law school or whether something that was more policy related. And so I ultimately decided that, um, that I was more interested in the policy. I, I thought the I thought the, the, the law school was the more practical alternative, but I knew I had no desire to ever practice. And so for me, the, 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 the policy was, was that the policy implications were, were, were more core to what I, was, uh, what, what I was interested in doing. So Harvard for me was a fantastic experience. I um, was, was um, interesting about the Kennedy School versus the, um, the business school is they're, they're very different cohorts of people, very different slants on the world and uh, very distinct personalities. But also uh, by virtue of doing the joint program, you get the run of the house and so to speak. So, so I got to take classes at the law school, the architecture school, the education school, MIT's urban studies program, their center for real estate in addition to the Kennedy School. And so it was just a fascinating combination of people and perspectives and learnings. I was running all over Cambridge, but it was um, but it, it was really just a tremendous experience for me. So, so, so those are really what, uh, what, what, what drove it for me, marrying those business interests to trying to create po- enduring sorts of policy solutions. So how many people were in the, in the cohort of uh, Kennedy and uh, the Harvard Business School? I mean, were you in a, a small group or was it a large group of people that were doing that together with you? Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny. I was, uh, I, I, we were like the penultimate class before it was really formalized and capitalized well. So, <laughs> so the class that started directly after me had, uh, there was a fellowship program that started that year following. Um, <laughs> and uh, there was a, the, the, they more actively recruited and uh, solicited on both sides of the house um, for that. So there were students not only from, uh, from HBS, but there were uh, also some other business schools. So I had some friends from uh, and classmates from um, Columbia and uh, business school, Kellogg, and, and, and a few others. So all in all, I think there were maybe 30, 35 people that were in the, um, in the joint program through a combination of, you know, Harvard's business school and some others. That must have been a very interesting experience to have that, being able to do that multi-culture, multi-discipline activity on the Harvard campus and then going over to MIT. That's phenomenal. Uh, I assume that helped you in perspective on a lot of things. Yeah, it was tremendous. It was, uh, you know, so for me, it was, I mean, you got to just listen and interact with and think about complicated problems with folks who had spent a ton of time, you know, thinking really deeply about them. You know, for better or worse, you know, those issues, especially at the Kennedy School, were the least sexy thing you could possibly do. <laughs> so there was a very small cohort of folks who were interested in those sorts of issues. You know, 
the um, you know things like international security and trade and you know the the, the focus of of much of the of, of the school and international development th- th- those sorts of things got a lot more time and attention a lot more folks focused on them so these issues around you know kind of um, urban policy issues and issues of achievement and wealth gaps and those sorts of things you know just got a lot less focused and so and then when you went into those other environments you were even smaller cohorts so you know there were maybe two or three of us that had, you know, interests specifically in education. So, you know, of those of us, you know, who were in the education school from that program, you know, just, just smaller and smaller branches. So, so yeah, it was, it, it was a tremendous experience. Definitely. Interesting. So Joe, tell us about your Harvard uh, experience a little bit. I uh, applied originally uh, to the JD MBA program. They did have a formalized program um, where, you apply to one, you apply to other, and then you apply to be joint. I don't know if they ever reject anybody after you already got in the other two, but, but, but it was a separate application process because I just couldn't imagine them being like, yeah, you're good enough for both numbers. You're not good enough for the joint program. I, I don't know how that works, but I started uh, at the law school and uh, that was intentional um, because I knew that law would be completely different, like 360 degree away from what my undergrad experience was um, being an engineer. And I just remember, I always have these moments in life where I'm like, what are these people talking about? Like, I remember, <laughs> I remember being in class and these people were talking about philosophy and economic theory and they're all bringing it to the law and I was just like wow like these people so it really was what I would say a liberal arts education so my JDBA was a liberal arts education after I already got a very technical degree so I'm just greedy that I got both a liberal arts education and a technical education all in one lifetime because anybody who said anything about whatever philosopher, I like wrote it down and I like looked it up. And then, you know, eventually I was like, wait a minute, I probably should be reading cases instead of like looking at what this person's talking about. (laughs) But that was the fun part about it. It was like, so these laws, and I think the way that Harvard teaches, I think they teach this across all the schools, like these laws are just tools to kind of what John was saying before, to manipulate in some way human behavior, whether it's in, uh, and that might be a strong word, and I'm sorry, like, you know, <laughs> manipulation, but, you know, whether it's marketing or uh, organizational design and the business side or on law sides, you know, tax policy or, you know, uh, land policy and how these different tools have a policy background. It's not just, you know, we want to lock up, you know, these the people that do this crime. I want to lock up people that do this crime to create this outcome, right? And so learning that that's what law was, and it was less about the black letter law, learning the elements of a crime, learning the elements of a contract, learning, but that these things can be meshed and moved in order to create the type of world that you want to be a part of was just amazing. And coming from a world, like, like John said, that had so many rules, right? That you couldn't change gravity in civil engineering. You couldn't change, like, this is what it is, right? But literally like something people think is very bedrock 
can be changed, right? So, you know, we just saw it. Um, state and local, state and local taxes, you know, being being, you know, can be changed, and the, the interest rate deduction can be changed, and because you're encouraging certain behavior, right? Was like, wow, okay, um, this is very interesting. And so, what I took law school to be is, like I said, like you know, really informing uh, my mind and my viewpoint and business school to be the social network part of it. Because as John said, just like he said about Kennedy School versus HBS, they, they're very different folks between the two schools. Some folks are kind of like a Venn diagram. Some folks kind of interact and they kind of probably be in each, either environment. But those, the folks at law school were like really focused on understanding and getting the right answer and saying it just right and being convincing. Whereas the, the business school is more about influence. Like, you know, how do I influence one to, to take my point as a serious one, as a real one? And both of them had a Socratic method. So both of them, you know, it was a lot about talking in class and really getting deep and building off of each other. And that creates I guess a person or an environment where you know that everybody's contribution is worth something, right? And it's not, I'm the smartest person in the room because you're not likely the smartest person in the room, but you still have to kind of understand what they're saying, repeat it back to them, and then put your point forward. And so I think that's what I learned the most. And, you know, from a theoretical standpoint, I I think you know, what I wrote in my essays, and I still think that it's true, you know, the combination between civil engineering, law, and business are perfect for real estate, perfect for investments, you know, perfect for kind of lifting up from the page and seeing the whole system, seeing the whole city, how it functions, what this policy is doing over this policy, what this law is doing over this law. And that really you know, revved me up for being in real estate and being a person that thought hard about real estate and its responsibility to the world and responsibility to the tenants or owners and, you know, all of that stuff. So talk about how you guys met. Was it at Harvard Business School? It was. John uh, came up for student weekend, uh, he and his wife, and I met them. I was already... I was already at Harvard Business by then. So I was in my second year. First year at law school, second year at business school, John came up and they were just really nice. They were just like really nice couple. <laughs> and I was like, wow, these people are nice. They're, they're cool. I was like, I hope he comes, you know? And I just remember talking to him much like we talked today, like really about some deep stuff, you know, like right off the bat, not like, you know, like, hey, what you think of the school, blah, blah. It was like really deep. It got really deep really quickly. And I like that we come back to that, you know, kind of time and time again when he became a student. And then, you know, when I already graduated, he was still there. I would talk to him. And then when he came here, you know, still being able to get you know, from just like I'm doing now, it's from the jokes all the way to like really serious, deep stuff, you know, that that really needs to be thought hard about. So that's how we met initially. Maybe John can add. 
as well. No, I think that that, that covers it pretty well. You know, it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's set the foundation for, uh, you know, just a really enduring relationship. It's, it's hard to believe that it's been, I guess, what, 15, 16 years at this point. But, uh, yeah, they passed quickly. <laughs> yeah, 2004, right? That's yeah. Mm-hmm. So did you guys talk about real estate all along, you know, early on in your in your no, knowing each other or not. <laughs> no, I don't think we started talking about real estate until I was probably close to the uh, graduation. I knew that's what I was going to do. Um, that's when we really start uh, talking about it. And for a little while, I had uh, flirted with going to real estate investment banking. Um, so I think I had a conversation with John about that, like. Although he wasn't per se in that group, but you know what investment banking and stuff was like. So, but I, I ended up going to. I felt like I felt like that was too distant from the sticks and bricks at the time. Um, so I ended up going to a developer. Yeah, so you joined Low Enterprises mm-hmm. at that point. Is that right, Joe? Mm-hmm. Okay. And John, you uh, tell about talk about your experience after Harvard a little bit. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that's uh, interesting about, you know, any of the joint programs is that you get, um, you know, a little bit more of an opportunity to experiment with uh, internships. So for me, I had um, two internships and to, to, to see two very different sides of the business. I spent my first with a um, small, oh, I guess a large, a, a CDC called um, the Community Builders. And so, you know, which I guess at that point was the largest nonprofit. You the Community Builders, John? What's that? You interned at the community builders. I did. I did. I did too, right? Yeah, we talked about that. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, you and uh, <laughs> Nelson as well. I think. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's so funny. Okay, I forgot about that. Go ahead. Absolutely. See, Joe, Joe forgets all the ways he's influenced my life, and so, um, <laughs> so I. I uh, I interned at, at, uh, at Community Builders, which was a multifamily developer, um, just you know, one of the largest nonprofits uh, in, in the country focused on that. And so for me, it was a you know, fantastic team of folks, a great experience. And I liked a lot of the elements of it. I was a bit concerned about you know, the pace you know, versus my, uh, my attention span. So my second internship was with uh, McFarland Partners, which is a company that I ended up uh, eventually joining uh, full time, and so they're more of um, uh, an investor. They were unique in that they had been an, an early entrant and a you know an innovator really in this uh, whole space around urban investing. You know, long before it was in vogue and before the concept was one that was even accepted as being practical. You know, they had decided to move in a, in a significant way into uh, into that space. So uh, Victor McFarland, the um, you know the namesake and the founder, took uh, an operation that he had started that was really focused initially on on core plus investing, and uh, that he had grown. But he had started and grown, you know, leveraging the sort of experience that he had had at um, primarily at Aetna, but at a, at a few other more entrepreneurial stops along the way. And really saw the opportunity in the space, uh, in the urban space, uh, before others really had any sort of rubric around it or, or, or thought that it was possible. Even more importantly, he was able to convince, you know, institutional investors to to pony up some dollars toward that end to be able to to demonstrate proof of that. So I went to to McFarland, and 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 for me that was you know it was a fantastic and you know professionally transformational 
experience to 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 be a part of the um, the growth and the evolution, I guess, of you know both yeah. that, that that organization as well as the industry. And so you moved to DC at that point. Yeah, so I, I interned in San Francisco and um, I joined full time the, the following year in in, in DC. And, and interestingly, they had um, really just moved into DC the several months prior to that, like kind of in between my internship and uh, and when I started full time. So. I, I interned in uh, in 06. I joined full time in the in the summer of uh, 2007, and uh, in that span, they had they had moved into let's see, seven partnerships with um, Lehman Brothers and Monument. They had uh, they were in uh, the late stages of getting ready to close a huge recapitalization of JBG and their first five funds. They forced a partnership with uh, Ben. Trammell Core Residential, uh, now Mill Creek, and a number of other developers. Um, you know, no, notably, they had uh, started up what would become a partnership with uh, with Jire Lynch Development Partners, which became a huge part of um, you know, professionally my career. So, so all of those things were really afoot. There was a ton of momentum, and the premise at that time was that DC was going to be the center of McFarland East, and so. It was a really exciting time for the um, uh, for for the organization just before the music stopped in the market, and that changed uh, that changed everything. Two thousand eight was a big transition, I assume, because Lehman Brothers, of course, went down. So, what did that mean? What what happened the morning after the crash? Lehman went down uh, in your household, uh, John. That morning, knowing full well that they were a big part of your of your investment future there. So, you know, there, there was, um, there was a lot of transition that was afoot even leading up to that, right. You know, so Lehman's implosion was shocking, but it didn't come from nowhere, right. Bear Stearns had, had already failed and the, you know, the writing was on the wall earlier in the year. So when I joined McFarland, the intention was to grow our local team from about seven or so professionals to, to North of 40. So we had way too much office space because we were, planning on rapidly building out that team. And uh, over the summer, we had already, as an organization, uh, had staff reductions and, and those sorts of things that already happened. So, you know, kind of the arc of the, you know, the, my, the, the plan that I had and my, the expectations I had when I joined had already changed at that point. You know, by the time that I, my first year, my, my one year anniversary came up, you know, we had gone from an organization of, you know, slightly north of 100 employees to somewhere around 50 to 60. And that was, you know, the first of, uh, I think, you know, two big reorganizations for the um, reductions uh, for, for the company. So, so that, that already happened and we were transitioning responsibilities and I had taken over ownership of the, um, those, um, the, the Monument Lehman projects and relationships. So, so it was, it was jarring and, you know, I had no, you know, had no, no, no sense for, for what was, uh, for what was ahead. Um, it was notable, not only because Lehman was the, was our co-investor uh, in those projects, but they were also, they also had a unique partnership with Monument. And you know, that was, you know, you know, big and public and that they were unique, had a unique co-sponsorship across a lot of Monument's properties. So, you know, it, it threw into question not only what was going to happen with those projects, but also what was going to happen for, you know, Monument as an organization. So, Joe, talk a little bit about your, uh, your experience coming out of Harvard. Yeah, so similarly, 
I had a, a mix of experiences in uh, business and law school as well. So uh, the first year, commonly with, uh, with John, I interned at Community Builders. And I, I learned a lot there, but I, I also realized that I needed something a little bit uh, more fast paced. But I knew that that experience would work into my career in the future because of what I was sort of building toward. The second year, I um, did um, a law internship uh, in real estate law down in Atlanta at a firm um, called Paul Hastings. Fantastic uh, experience. But once again, uh, and I, I still like, I still keep in contact with some of those folks. Once again, it was like, okay, um, this is not it either, but this will definitely add to sort of, you know, going through real estate documents. This is going to be a part of my life. So, might as well come down here and learn and know what this is. <laughs> and then the other half of that summer, I uh, worked at GE Real Estate. And I, I worked at uh, GE Real Estate and all of these, uh, all of these like community builders, GE Real Estate, and eventually Low. I, it was no like formalized like internship program. I was just like, I'm about to be your intern. Like, look, I'm about to be your intern. And they're like, huh? Like, G is a big organization. I'm like, I'm about to be your intern. <laughs> and I just worked myself in to be their intern. So I had an intern with the Strategic Ventures Group, and they had never had an intern before, and they didn't really know what to do with me. And so I just kind of did whatever, that it, whatever it was. And at that point, I had an opportunity to, and I just milked the organization. I, you know, I met Leslie Hell there. You know, I went... Really? She was working in New York. She was closing a deal and I didn't care. I sat outside her office the whole day. She was there. Like, her assistant came out like, she doesn't have time. I'm like, I don't care. She's going to come out eventually. I'll be right here. So I just sat there. I just sat there <laughs> and she came out and I remember her looking so intense and she's a little intense anyway, but she's, you know, she's a great yes, person. She is. And she, she came out and she was like, you've been waiting on me. <laughs> I was like, yes. And she gave me a few words of wisdom and that was just, you know, and I remember that to this day because anybody, any African-American real estate person is, you know, I'm busy. People's like pinging me. Eventually I'm going to get to you. I'm going to, I'm going to make sure I talk to you, you know, and that, that was very special for me. And she gave me some tips about GE and what to do when I got back to Harvard and, and all that stuff. And then the last year, so, so the Street Adventures Group had strategic relationships with different organizations, and one of them was Low. So they had like probably 10 portfolio organizations, and GE will kill me for this, but I think the statute of limitations is over. I said, of the 10 portfolio companies, which one do you think is the best executor? <laughs> and I asked them, I said, and what, given my personality, what organization would I fit in the best? And they said Low Enterprises. I said, well, I'm going to be lowering the prices intern next year. <laughs> Once again, lowering the prices didn't have an internship program <laughs> So I basically stopped the low enterprises people like, I'm going to be your intern. I'm going to be your intern. And what's interesting about that is, you know, I, so what Mike at the time, Mike Balaban, I think did, one of the senior vice presidents, Steve Evans, these are still people, you know, that are in the market, so you know these people. So Steve Evans of course. interviewed Yep. It, initially, and he was just like, you know, GE said for me to talk to you. I don't know what's going on here. You're trying to be our intern. You know, Steve's first down is like, like what, what are you trying to do? Uh, and I was like, yes, I'm trying to be an intern. And then I uh, interviewed with Eileen Serco, 
And she was like, okay. And then I didn't hear from them. And then she called me back and was like, you can come in and be an intern. So that summer is basically Mike, Balaban, Eileen Serco, and Steve Evans that I worked for. And it was kind of like, I kind of got in where I fit in. And I, I just thank them to this day for taking a risk on somebody like me. Some people say it would not be a big risk because I was already at Harvard Business School, Harvard Law School. But, you know, I was literally just this random person, like, I'm going to intern with you. And I don't even know how I'm going to get paid. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I, I'm, I'm going to be here interning. And, you know, the fit was there. So when they called the next year uh, for me to come on board, I jumped at the opportunity, although I had other offers from hedge funds, investment bank funds, and all this other stuff. I, it was hard for me to find my way to a developer. And I really wanted to be with the sticks and bricks. And I really liked what they were doing at the time. Um, Cause I had written a lot while I was in Harvard, Harvard Law and Harvard Business, which I was getting to earlier about transformation of cities, public-private partnerships. And at the time, Lowe had just won the City Vista procurement. And that was just my dream project. I was like, this is, this is it. Like God has spoken. This is where I'm supposed to be. And I went to work. So there, I came in 2006. So I was a year ahead of John in graduating. So I kind of got my feet wet pretty good before the downturn in 2008. So thankfully, by then, I had proven myself to Mike and Steve and um, Eileen Serco uh, and Jeff Miller, who was there at the time already. And I stayed on and I started to run um, the City Vista project uh, during that time. And it was in a good place, but the whole market was in a bad place. So every, every investment was on a watch list, you know. Um, so we had, you know, a loan that was technically, you know, in default, but, you know, we were still selling condos straight through the downturn. So to navigate that situation of being able to still deliver apartment buildings, still sell it, still develop, um, deliver retail, still sell it, still deliver condos through a downturn was just a fantastic experience. And meanwhile, our other project, Fort Totten, I also took over that project. That project had begun to flounder as well because it hadn't started construction yet, unlike uh, City Vista. So to navigate that, which was basically near to foreclosure and bring JBG in as a co-partner on that one, because our capital partner was having issues as well, was both humbling, but also showing what my flexibility and what the flexibility of low was to like survive in the environment that we were in. For those two experiences and being able to stay on and really do workouts, basically, that's essentially what both of them were, and still come out with a successful project for the communities that they served was just incredible. So That's a great experience. Going back to City Vista for just a moment, just to reference back to the listeners that uh, uh, I interviewed Mike Balaban a few episodes back, so he talks about that project in some detail as well. You had a partner there, CIM Group, too, yeah. which is a pretty strong group. So yeah. did they add uh, a lot to that project and help you with the 
Absolutely. There. I, like I said, I mean, CIM, I felt didn't really skip a beat during the um, downturn and to juxtapose the two projects. This is why even today I am so discerning about partners, right? Because those two came out totally different based on how the partners functioned, right? So one was like a hedge fund. So when the market went down, they were out. They were like, we can, we basically trade in and out of real estate, just like everything else. It's time for us to get out, right? (laughs) Whereas CIM was here to stay, right? And CIM had developed the capabilities within their organization to do the heavy lift if they needed to. Thankfully, low was there, so they didn't really have to do as much heavy lift. But they were there sort of shoulder to shoulder with low, kind of working it out, talking to the banks, trying to figure out how to sort of make it make it all work and, you know, price the project appropriately, still deliver, you know, reassure contractors that were going to be there because people were just like not paying contractors. Like we're still trying to build the project. People were like, am I, I going to get paid all the way down to the subcontractor level, you know? And then just really having the experience, the bench with, you know, Mike, um, Harmer Thompson was also there at the time. And th- those individuals that became my mentors, my, you know, viewpoint of real estate, being able to say, okay, this has happened before and this is how we need to treat our partners. So Lowe was not the type of organization that ran on their partners, even the, even if the, the agreement said, okay, when it gets this bad and we're not getting paid by the bank anymore, I can leave. You know, that's not, that's not what Lowe did, right? So when banks stopped funding, they're like, okay, let's figure this out with their partners. And I think that's what made Lowe being able to come out of downturn. Because there are a lot of people that came out of downturn that rebranded themselves. Like Lowe didn't have to rebrand itself, right? So it, it came out of downturn, the same company it was when it went in. And some folks walked on, you know, let folks foreclose, let folks, you know, do whatever. And they rebranded themselves afterwards, right? <laughs> and said, oh, no, we're still, we're, we're, we're a stalwart. And that's not 100% true. And you have to think of that when you're making partnerships in the future, right? You have to think when the going's good, this person's going to be with it. But when the going's bad, where are they going to be? You know, how are they going to be? So I learned that at Lowe, um, that no matter how dark it became, Lowe was there as a partner to its partners. And they they believed that that was their obligation. So I'm going to switch back to John for a moment. I want to talk about the contrast uh, that what Joe just said about Lowe relative to McFarland and your experience there. Okay. A little bit. During the downturn, um, you know, I think, um, you know, life changed in significant ways for us all. So I think, uh, you know, I was very much in a set of circumstances where, where we uh, were in the midst of workout as well. So, you know, not the least of which for me, you know, started with, uh, you know, a handful of projects that we had with, uh, with Lehman Brothers. What was interesting for us is that, so we closed two separate funds in the third quarter of 2008, weeks before Lehman declared bankruptcy. So it created this um, very unique dynamic where we had a huge portfolio that was amassed, you know, largely in 2006 and 2007 uh, locally, in addition to a huge, um, a huge pot of, of uh, dry powder that we were contemplating deploying, but the strategy obviously was 
uh, was going to be very different than it was uh, initially intended to be, you know, at the time that those funds were raised. One of those funds um, was um, in the very same vein as the previous funds, kind of traditional urban investing. And the other was uh, what, we, what was our, we termed our emerging manager fund, which was a un- unique vehicle. And the, um, the investment locally through that fund was in, uh, in Jire Lynch uh, Development Partners. So, so two very different orientations. You had, you know, more than 100 properties you know, that were uh, suddenly thrust into a position where you, we were in some form of workout with our partners at, at varying stages of the development process, various degrees of, of severity. And then you had this dry powder that you were, that you were ta- charged with, with deploying that you had to figure out, you know, what was the strategy that made the most sense to, to take advantage of opportunity in the, in, in, in the new environment. And what was unique about Jair's organization at that point was that they had previously uh, only one investment or one one project that had third party investment. It was with us. It was you know we had a very small amount of equity that was in it, and it's a project that although there was some modest workout associated with it, you know it was it was one that you know we always anticipated we could get back to plus minus break even. So there wasn't a tremendous amount of effort that was spent there. So we had an opportunity to become very thoughtful and strategic about how we were going to take advantage of the opportunity uh, opportunities presented by the, um, the downturn without any of the sort of baggage that existed for most organizations, you know, not the least of which, you know, most of my, most of my portfolio that I manage. So, so McFarland as an organization really dug in, you know, it was a unique opportunity for me, not only because you were drinking from a fire hose because um, you know, the, the resources changed, but also you know, essentially the way that we reorganized, there was a whole layer of management that, um, you know, that was removed. And so, you know, suddenly, instead of reporting up through managing directors and principals, I, I reported to the president of the company and um, later on to, to Victor McFarland directly. You know, we had more asset exposure in DC Metro than anywhere in the country the entire time that I was at McFarland. So, everyone was always, you know, keenly focused on what was happening in, in DC. And so, so I think, you know, to, to the points that, that Joe made, you know, being focused on, you know, seeing the process through, making sure that, you know, both as partners and as fiduciaries that we were, you know, thoughtful and intense. And part of the ethos for McFarland had always been that we had significant development shops and execution capacity within the organization. It was just more efficient. We were more efficient operators as, uh, as capital allocators. And so the president of the firm at that point, Greg Vilkin, had been a developer for 30 plus years before joining McFarland Partners, um, maybe the senior most non-Ratner at Forest City. He left Forest City West before joining McFarland. Uh, Chuck Berman, the, the vice chairman of the firm at that point, was uh, the founder of Avalon, who's a, you know, um, and, and part of the team that merged with Bay and took it public. And we just had several people throughout the organization who had, you know, storied careers as developers. And so, and much of our portfolio were development and redevelopment projects. So, we circled the wagons and thought very intensely about how we could manage through and 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 manage towards success as much as uh, as as possible the um, you know the varied circumstances across our, our, our partnerships. So you had to more or less reconstruct the portfolio and and that ended up being a dissolution situation for most of your partnerships at uh, at Farland, right? Uh, as it evolved. A dissol- no, I, w- I wouldn't say that it was a dissolution. I mean, we, so 
we had um, we we had a huge we had we had two two flagship funds at the point that um, that that I, I joined that became followed by the other two that I mentioned that just uh, just just closed in the third quarter of two thousand eight. So both of those two uh, funds uh, are Urban Fund One and Urban Fund Two. Urban Fund One was was um, a single investor. Fund Two was commingled with institutional partners. Both were a big part of the the JBG transaction. Um, so you know there was a big public spectacle around the sort of reorganization of that because basically we recapitalized in a way that Fund One went away from that investment, and there was a dissolution of the 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 partnerships with McFarlane and the and and, and that investor CalPERS that partially that was 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 largely driven by a completely separate matter on the West Coast entirely that was um, not related to the urban business at all it was uh, related to to land investments uh, and there was a huge transaction land source in Southern California that um, you know that that, that was um, you know, they garnered a lot of press, um, and, and and that was really the driver for that. Um, you know, with with virtually everything else, I mean, there were there were just some form of some form of workout, not not a dissolution of partnership. So so no, it was it really was the the hand to hand exercise of going through you know each of those projects and working with each of those partners and uh, trying to find solutions uh, to uh, to bridge to the other side. And you know, I think. You know, by 2010, 2011, you know, we were we were deploying meaningful dollars from those other two funds at that point as well. So, so it was the you know the twin activities of you know um, finding opportunity in addition to you know working through the you know the the, the difficulties of of those existing partnerships. But eventually, it led to the closing of your office there. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, that was that, very different. So. Eventually, what happened was that we reached the point where we worked ourselves out of jobs. But that was that was really at the tail end of the fund for for three of our funds. That was basically when, once we reached the end of the fund life for for the two funds that that closed in the in the third quarter of two thousand eight, as well as the extent what what became the extended uh, fund life for the for the previous fund that uh, had recapitalized the, um, the the JBG properties and others, it was the tail end of the fund life uh, for that that uh, that that we closed the um, the local office. So you know there was a there was a ton of activity you know between the the downturn and and, and then it wasn't kind of a, a straight line of of of, of workouts and, and dissolution. No, so yeah, there were a lot of uh, a lot of important investments made both with. Um, Locally, um, you know, uh, what became one of the most successful emerging manager programs nationally for CalSTRS, the, um, the capital uh, partner behind that, and, you know, what really launched um, Jair Lynch's organization into orbit. You know, I think uh, recently I've, I've read that they are the most uh, locally, the, the most active acquirer of multifamily post, uh, post-COVID, which is, uh, which is incredible. And they have... Uh, you know, capital partnerships now that that span. Are you post COVID already? Was that not quite post COVID? Not no, quite post COVID no, yet. No, post the emergence of COVID. Uh, not. not <laughs> and so I was uh, just making sure. I was like, oh wait a minute, something happened yesterday. I don't know about. Yeah, well, <laughs> the message may not have reached down there or, or up there. I guess. Uh, uh, Joe. Yeah. So it's. Um, 
so so that that organization you know really you know all of those all of those investments happened after that after that time frame and you know the sort of sequence of activity uh, around that you know we spent no shortage of time that was a 10 year experience and partnership in the in the, in the making for me and uh, we we made some huge bets and investments in um in particular in New York you know with that uh fund as well so more than 1000 properties in the Williamsburg neighborhood on the you know directly on the on, on the East River, so so some huge investments and developments in addition to you know a lot of development that still you know happened um, you know out of that portfolio here locally and a lot of um, you know a lot of workouts that ensued. That's great. So let me switch back to Joe again and uh, talk about your transition from Low and to what you're doing now and what you did at the tail end of your career at Low, with particularly with what is still, I believe, the highest rent apartments building in the city. So talk about that a little bit, Joe. So, so from, from Fort, delivering Fort Totten to um, we at Lowe also had a, a hotel company at the time. So the hotel company and our company, so our sub-companies of Lowe overall company, purchased the, the Hilton Washington. And the plan was to renovate um, the Hilton and then build um, luxury, at the time, luxury condos adjacent to the, um, the Hilton. And um, essentially, you know, coming out of the 2008 downturn, investors were very circumspect of such a thing, right? And basically, when I, you know, entered the project, just like Fort Totten, just like City Vista. And then by this point, the organization had transitioned to Mark Rivers. We had a plan. Our plan was to convince investors to come in because our current investor in the whole, the whole uh, hotel was, was essentially had been bitten by the 2008 bug. And it was really hard to convince them that I should put more money into this project uh, so that I can make, you know, this pop on the condo, although that was part of the whole, you know, process. So it was a process of getting that piece of land out of the, the, the broader partnership. And this was also an interesting twist to my career because we ended up going with, with IB, IBW related fund. And we had ne- I had never done a union job before. Going and approaching a union job in D.C., which is very common in other jurisdictions, was just a completely different learning experience for me. But we eventually made the deal with them. They were fantastic partners. And in delivering the project, we dreamed big. Uh, We dreamed big in every way. Like my, my mantra to the team was every unit will have an item of delight, right? So every unit will be surprising when you come into it, right? So no unit, because I was tired of it. We're going to do this. I'm tired of apartment buildings where you get the joke the first time and then it's told over and over again, like in every unit, right? So one way to do that was to make the building curvilinear. So each unit had a unique view, like no unit, obviously the units on your tour tier have the same view, but no unit has like, okay, you're on this side versus that side versus that side. The second was in each unit, looking at each unit 
design and deciding, okay, well, all the other ones have a single sink here. This one will have a double sink or this will have, you know, uh, additional bathroom or whatever it was. Or this one will have a balcony and making sure that each unit, there was no cookie cutter unit and managing uh, that process. And then branding. Okay, Joe, 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 can yes. you stop for just a moment and explain the name of the project and the location? Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> the name of the project is the Hepburn in DuPont Circle, adjacent to the um, the Washington Hilton. Is I forgot all the statistics by now, but, <laughs> but I think it's 195 or 94 units, uh, which range from a very few studios all the way up to three bedrooms and two bedroom dens. And so when we built the project and when we perform the dollars that we, that we put in the performa, Bazudo didn't believe the numbers, national uh, real estate advisors didn't, re- didn't believe the number, no one believed the number except me and Mark Rivers. We're like, we're gonna get this number. <laughs> we're gonna get this number because this, these, these people are out here if it's the last thing we do. And so really working with, you know, Bazudo put the right team on the on the ground, making sure the finishes were exactly as they need to be, making sure the space was exactly as it need to, need to be, and making sure that all was effortless and timeless, um, as the name you know suggests. Hepburn is sort of an effortless, timeless name, and um, you know it actually it actually means uh, a burn. It, it, it actually comes from a burn. There's a giant burn there, so it it, it actually fit the thesis the, the thesis of the project being above everyone else in the city and the, the bottom even the bottom floor has views of the Washington Monument it's a unique project and I was glad that I did the project um, because once again as I said about my current um, company about diversification having different experiences but having impact and really getting to that impact so interesting so uh, then you uh, decided to leave Low Enterprises. Yes. Well, not yes. at that moment, but once I the project was finished. More acquisitions. It's not worthy project, though. Really, yeah, it, I, I transitioned from being a development manager, per se, to being an acquisition officer, investment officer. So I did a couple more acquisitions. Um, but then, you know, I, I had to have a hard conversation with Mark and the other members there that I was leaving and I was leaving to do this kind of amorphous thing, which is cross river. Right. So, so a lot of it still is real estate, but it's growing on like the technology side, um, you know, already. And, and once again, just like the people looked at me at first grade, when I went to the new class, they're looking at me like I was crazy a little bit because, <laughs> uh, you know, although I had a technology background from Accenture, you know, saying you're going to technology and real estate and kind of build, Putting those together is kind of interesting to folks. Um, so we'll see how it all comes out. Uh, most of the technology side is still top secret, so we'll be talking about that today. But <laughs> but the real estate side, uh, I could talk about it quite de- in, in great detail. So Joe, tell me a little bit more about uh, Cross River and uh, what you're doing at at that operation at that company. So Cross River is a platform that I put together. Uh, to kind of bring sort of three, the three parts of my career uh, together. One uh, is technology, which I did uh, prior to 
going to business school. Um, so there, uh, we invest in technology companies, um, uh, mostly early stage to middle early stage. Most of them are uh, companies that have at least some connection to real estate, uh, sometimes not a real estate application per se to help real estate professionals have something to do with managing real estate or tracking real estate for users. Number two is uh, multifamily, uh, which I did uh, sort of uh, mid-career. I say mid-career, but most of my career probably. <laughs> From about 2008 until when I left low. So multifamily. Uh, and most of that is focused in the DMV area. And I have uh, three projects in the area that focus on that. And the third is sort of in- industrial um, slash corporate you know, relationships that I've been able to acquire over time in order to build their real estate. So whether it is um, a corporation uh, planning to spin off their real estate holdings from their balance sheet, or it's a uh, corporation that wants to build a headquarters or a distribution center, so on and so forth. Uh, so that's the third rung of the of the uh, project, so of, of, of Cross River. Uh, so the, the theory is the corporate work definitely keeps the lights on because you have a client, you have, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You have a client, they're very liable, you know what you need to do. And about half of the time, those become ventures as well, but sometimes they're just, fee, it's just fee work. The second rung is sort of the juice of the real estate side uh, with the residential. Um, so I invest uh, those funds into that part. And then the third part is sort of a little bit rolling the dice, right? So you have some money that you're, so of my portfolio companies, you know, a couple of them have already, um, so I did loans with a couple of them. I've already paid back their loans at pretty high uh, interest rates. And then I get a piece of the equity going forward after they pay, they pay back their loans. So it's kind of like a hope note if they uh, later recapitalize in some way. I'll get a payday. So, so the three together work pretty well and keep my life very varied and uh, interesting. So that's what CrossFit does. You have a couple of co- corporate clients now. I know at this point you can't talk about them specifically, but tell me mm-hmm. a little bit how you, how you generated that business. So one of them is a, a large uh, consumer packaged good um, company in Florida. They have tasked me to build a headquarters, a new headquarters for them, office headquarters for them, as well as an industrial warehouse and an industrial production facility. As I said, like these projects end up being a mix between real estate and really corporate strategy. So part of it is helping them come to what they need. And then essentially my um, building their, or, or orchestrating the building of the, of the project. Um, so far, we're in zoning, um, which once again, a corporation would not know anything about or how to start. So we're in zoning. We just got approved for 1.5 million square feet for the property. And the other piece is in working with them, we carved off about 21 acres to do um, retail and office in addition to what they they wanted. Um, So that was something that I was uniquely able to kind of figure out from a planning perspective 
as well as from a use perspective, just to kind of get that mix just just right. So once again, even within that project, you have both the sort of steady, which I know that they're coming to the location. They they want the, you know, they they're their uh, square footage is about a million. They want the million square feet. And then there's another five hundred thousand square feet where we can do other uses on the site. Now it's very different from DC. I mean the site is I don't know, might be half the size of uh, of Tyson Corner, so it's like 165. It's 165 acres, so wow. Uh, so it sounds like I mean, obviously, a million square feet is a lot, but 165 acres, a million square feet, is kind of like, oh, okay, that was okay, you know. So, so, uh, <laughs> so it's a lot different from that perspective. But I'm from Florida. I was able to uh, network in this opportunity from a, uh, a cross-section of going to Harvard Business School and being from Florida, because there's some folks on the board and, and on the, um, in, in the executive ranks that are Harvard Business School, and there's some folks that knew me from being in Florida. So that was that. Was that. And then I have another in um, Texas. Um, here, it, it is that other part where I was saying a company that wants to spin off uh, their real estate holdings from the corporate entity. I'm working on that as well. Um, so I invested there knowing that I knew who the tenant was going to be. And I raised a little mini fund with other investors and that corporation in order to buy those properties out of, out of that, uh, that entity. So it's, it's, it's very interesting. And uh, that part has kept me pretty busy in the pandemic because my residential projects in D.C. have slowed for a variety of reasons, all related to the pandemic. So that was very timely. And I'm glad that I kind of created that third run of the company, as I said, to keep it stable and going. Are you a solo practitioner at this point or do you have uh, teammates yet? So, so what I've done so far and um, John, John and John are trying to help me on this probably. <laughs> So Cross, Cross River right now is just me, but in each of the entities, the special purpose entities, I've hired people directly in those entities. It's starting to become on the, a little bit unmanageable at the Cross River side <laughs> because of how those agreements are written. Obviously, there are things that they need from Cross River, so I can't, it's a lot of inbounding of issues, even though all those po- folks are obviously professionals and they can do most of it themselves, but, you know, there has to be their major decisions, their design changes and things of that nature where Cross River has to step up and have to be available and they may have to be available at the same time. So that can become challenging. And so I'm trying to work through that. I like to say I'm certainly not, you know, a family office, but that's kind of the structure that I've kind of created here. (laughs) It's a family office of one. So it's like a, a Cross River here and then all the different, you know, projects underneath so really trying to figure out how I staff at the cross river level will become even more important because we have some major technology investments on the horizon that I need to uh, shepherd as well. So, so, but it's fun. I'm still, I'm still living my best life. I'll say it that way, but, but certainly my, my new wife and everybody around me thinks I need help probably soon and very soon. <laughs> well, the pandemic offers opportunities because people are, a lot of people are in transition. So you might be able to find a good teammate potentially to help you, which would be a good thing. 
See what I tell you, you guys. See John and John are helping with this. <laughs> they see me running around. They're like, uh, maybe you need somebody to be helping you. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Stephen Covey, you know that four quadrants. It's hard to be in that fourth quadrant. You just worry about, you just worry about the yeah. quadrant one, and you're just trying to get it all done. And you're like, I'm probably here. So we'll see. Well, our next mastermind meeting, we can talk about that maybe. <laughs> Thank you. <John. laughs> Okay, John, it's your turn. Well, t- tell, tell me a little bit about what uh, Blackstar is and what you're doing there. Sure, sure. So um, the work we do at Blackstar actually fits in uh, a, a few buckets as well, um, you know, the first of which is uh, focused principally, I, I guess, uh, Blackstar uh, Real Estate Partners, uh, writ large, is, uh, is a real estate investment manager. Um, but the way that we approach that are um, three three categories of uh, activities. You know, the first is uh, very much um, piggybacks on the work that, um, uh, that my team did at McFarland. Um, and so it is invested, uh, focused on investments um, uh, in commercial real estate across asset classes. You know, uh, much of that has a, um, uh, a development and redevelopment focus. And in particular, Leveraging the uh, the sorts of um, high impact projects in urban and, and, and high density suburban markets and, and opportunity zones. So we can talk a bit about strategically why we, we saw opportunity zones as uh, as compelling and, and why we we felt like uh, we were uniquely well positioned to um, to capitalize on that. But so so the first bucket uh, really is that. Um, the second for us is um, uh, it piggybacks on other work we did at McFarland related to uh, emerging sponsors and managers. So uh, finding ways to uh, invest and co-invest in, in, in sponsors and GPs, uh, both to help uh, advance their, uh, their organizations as well as to, to capitalize individual projects that may have uh, otherwise been challenged by virtue of uh, a lack of financial wherewithal or you know certain uh, capacity uh, constraints for uh, for their, their organizations at, uh, at that stage. And the third, we're putting a lot of energy into now we have um, have recently launched a social impact fund. We've been working on it for uh, for over a year now, but the timing of um, coming to market couldn't have been much better in that it is uh, a strategy that is um, is focused on equitable and inclusive home ownership strategies attacking predatory lending practices and uh, pursuing foreclosure prevention. So very counter-cyclical set of activities and ones that are especially timely and, uh, and apropos now. So uh, it makes us seem a little more prescient in that process. It makes it um, you know, a compelling set of conversations to uh, engage with um, prospective investors and partners today. And, and it's unique in a, in, in in a number of ways, but not the least of which, I guess, as far as affordable housing strategies go, and in particular, preservation of affordable housing strategies go, you know, most typically, they tend to focus on rental. This one is an ownership strategy. It's nationwide. It is one that uh, we think is compelling, partially because it doesn't require concessionary capital. The risk-adjusted returns are, are just compelling of their own merit. And we think that it's a, it's, it's a pretty clever approach. And so uh, we're really excited. We're actively raising. We just um, had a uh, closing with a, uh, with a seed investor in June, and we are anticipating first close uh, for the fund in, uh, in the fourth quarter. So, and we have our first pool of properties under, under contract. 
to close uh, by, by mid-September, 120 properties um, uh, dispersed across 16 states. So, um, so, so very excited with respect to that. And we have um, a team of, uh, of four full-time employees that are, that are focused uh, principally on activities related to that strategy. So your, your fund is separate from your other activities. That's a separate entity. Is that correct, John? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is a separate entity. It's a little distinct. Two of the partners uh, on that are exclusively focused on that set of activities. And the four, including myself, um, you know, two, two of us are focused across some of those, those other efforts as well. The two who are focused exclusively on this are interesting in that they, um, you know, for the last decade have have crafted uh, programs that are focused on issues related to these. And this represents kind of the next step of an evolution in that. You know, both were, uh, were previously public officials for the city of Portland. One was a city council, <clears throat> city council member and uh, housing commissioner for about 12 years. The other was a city treasurer. Uh, and when they received public life was not too long before the, uh, the global financial crisis. And so they actually had a really clever idea on how to uh, confront some of the foreclosure activity that was happening. Uh, so they, they crafted a program for the state of Oregon that was focused on foreclosure prevention. And what they did was uh, they recognized that with short sales, that the lenders had accepted that the collateral value was significantly uh, reduced and they were willing to sell the property at the prevailing market basis to everyone except for the families that currently. Uh, resided in those homes. That was a very unfortunate situation because in a lot of cases, those families who were underwater and couldn't make the payments at the previous basis could at a reduced basis, but they would almost certainly never have an opportunity to because their credit would be wrecked and because the lender would never uh, sell it uh, or or adjust their their, their mortgages to those reduced bases. And so they used uh, federal hardest hit funds from the TARP program, uh, Troubled Asset Relief Program, that were filtered through the, through the state of Oregon. And they would structure, structure purchases such that they would negotiate a short sale in coordination with the lender and a family. And then at the closing table, they would use the, the hardest hit funds through the state to provide a mortgage and, and contemporaneously buy and then sell, uh, buy from the lender and sell to this family and provide a mortgage using those funds to keep, in order to keep those families in their homes. And it turned out to be very wildly successful. Uh, the foreclosure avoidance rate was extraordinarily high. The reduction in principal, the average was over $100,000, uh, hundreds of dollars a, a, a month, uh, over $500 a month average reduction. And it just proved to be uh, extremely effective uh, mechanism on a long-term basis to, um, to keep these families in their homes. The problem with it was that it was extremely inefficient. It took a lot of activity to put the pieces together to make that work. They, although they helped over 250 families, it, it really got the, the, the wheels turning on that just as the opportunity really was shifting. And so the federal dollars uh, dried up and they never really got a, an opportunity to take advantage of having the flywheel in motion. And so after that period, they, um, they, they created they migrated that model to one that was national in scope and used private dollars. With that program, the distinction was that they were buying NPLs, uh, non-performing mortgages, toward a very similar end. And they would modify those mortgages in a substantially similar way, but, the, you know, but it was a much more efficient way to, to bring the strategy to market. 
So it was effective economically. It was doing extremely well. And, you know, the contrast is pretty stark. So the nationwide, you know, if you look at NPL and REO buyers, the foreclosure avoidance rates tend to be around uh, 30%. If you look at this team's strategies, their, their foreclosure avoidance rate was in the mid to high 90s, right? So very effective strategy, wow. market, market driven, and it, was, uh, and, and it felt really good. Um, but there was a natural tension that emerged because these investors were not mission aligned, unfortunately. And so there, while there was satisfaction that they were exceeding the, the sort of um, target return uh, expectations, there was a notion that perhaps they could be improved further if they were more aggressively uh, willing to pursue foreclosures and to be a little more expedient. So we found one another a little over uh, a year ago and found a lot of common ground in terms of um, mission alignment and, and uh, you know, kind of a view of the world, but also, uh, you know, we've been tinkering with the strategy that ultimately we started to collaborate on and that represented kind of the, the, the next step in the, in the evolution of that. And that was to apply uh, a similar set of uh, activities and to leverage a lot of those relationships um, and, and um, uh, the track record that they had built and to apply those to a particularly problematic product, uh, financial instrument called uh, Contracts for Deed which are a uh, historically predatory form of seller financing of single-family homes. Problematic for, uh, for, for a host of reasons, um, but this represented an opportunity to, to leverage that approach to, to, to act in that space that affects um, you know, uh, just a huge block of the country. It's um, over $200 billion of, of those, those contracts that are active in the, in the country right now, disproportionately affecting minority and low-income communities. Um, it's especially prevalent in places where there are high concentrations of low-balance um, uh, properties. So, you know, where there are lots of properties that are $75,000 or less, you'll see the highest concentrations. Uh, so particularly in the Midwest and the South, um, most prevalently, and, and to a lesser degree, you know, I'd say a step change down in the corridor from the Midwest. John, how many families are affected, do you think, by these two hundred billion of, of uh, outstanding obligations. Yeah, you know, we, we, we think it's uh, we, we think it's north of two million families. Um, two million families. Wow. Yeah. So it's interesting because it's a you know it's a problem that the country can track a little more closely. The best sources for information for it have been the um, the American Housing Survey, um, which was a part of the U.S. Census, and it's, um, the questions related to that. That, that instrument were pulled in 2009, and so it took what was already a very incomplete set of data and just uh, and just cast a big hole in it. So, um, so you know, it's it's, it's interesting. So we we um, there's a patchwork of regulations at the state level um, that, and it's largely unregulated at the federal level. Things as simple as requiring uh, the transactions be recorded are not consistently required across the states. Uh, and even where it is required, uh, it's inconsistently enforced. So <clears throat> there's always been this notion that these, this is a very fragmented market, which, which unequivocally it is. But it's hard to, to know how much it really is or not, because the best sources for information are you know, research on records and on, on, uh, on broad surveys. Well, as a point of reference, you know, we, um, uh, we looked at some research from the Federal Reserve Bank that shows um, in the Midwest unequivocally um, the, the lion's share of transactions are dominated by 
sellers that only have a single property um, under a, under a contract like this. That's that's what you know, kind of the land records reflect. When we look at the um, at the pool that we we currently have under contract, it's 120 properties, but only 12 of those are recorded. So anyone looking from the outside in would say, well, you know, there's only you know this person only has 12 properties. Um, the seller was really direct with us in stating that the only reason that they recorded any of those and, and the only instances that they chose to record were when there was a third party that was compelling um, that they actually be recorded. Usually because there was some form of grant or some, some other third party that had a very specific and strict requirement around that. And what they did, even in those instances where it was required, where recordation was required, uh, they forced the buyers to pre-execute an undated deed in lieu of forfeiture. Uh, which My is goodness. tantamount to uh, deed in lieu of foreclosure. Wow. These, the, the buyers of these uh, don't get the right for a foreclosure. They're, they're subject to a process of forfeiture, which is more akin to, to eviction. But so to, to pre-execute those and to, to, uh, to, to provide those to the, um, to the sellers um, uh, in, in, as consideration, for uh, for for recording the um, for recording their transaction, so I mean it's 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 tantamount to you know to your lender telling you at the closing table you know we're not going to close unless you execute it you pre-execute a deed in lieu of foreclosure uh, just in case you ever default because we don't want to go through the hassle of <clears throat> of actually foreclosing on you. This is unbelievable, John. I mean, I guess it's uh, you know a study could be done not necessarily from a business standpoint, from a social standpoint here to analyze that the demographics of all that and, and reveal that to the investment community and in a way that it would be quite compelling, I would think. So there would be not only, you know, uh, social pressure, but, you know, potentially economic and political pressure uh, on people that own these, and which is an excellent segue to our next conversation. Uh, we just finished part one of uh, our discussion with John Green and Joe Carroll. And it was uh, an interesting discussion about their backgrounds and coming up. And of course, in part two, we're going to dive a little deeper into some of the issues of the, of the day with regard to civil uh, injustice and, and race relations, etc. But we now have once again, my colleague Tom Amos is joining me to talk a little bit uh, after the episode here with some observations and questions that he has. So go right ahead, Tom. Sure. Good morning, John. How are you doing today? Good. Yeah. So this first part for John and Joe, there was a lot of talk about education. And I, I thought it was great, Joe, uh, telling that story about him going on to FAMU's campus for the first time before he decided that he was going to go there. And uh, it brought back some uh, nostalgia for me. My first time visiting, I went to, to Auburn and uh, had a similar experience. You know, you show up on the campus and you're like, oh, this is, this is home. This, this, is where, this is where I fit. So that was, that was really nice. And um, I've got some facts for HBCUs here for us today. So, you know, a lot of the HBCUs across the country started right after, almost immediately after the Civil War to provide higher education for Blacks during 
periods of segregation. And then obviously they continued into the universities and colleges that they are today. Right now, there are 101 HBCUs in the U.S. And I looked and there are only, only two of them out of the 101 offer a real estate program. And those two are Allen University in Columbia, South Carolina, and St. Augustine's in Raleigh, North Carolina. And then obviously here we've got you know, Howard University, which also started right after the Civil War as a theological seminary school, uh, but very quickly became a college for liberal arts and now obviously is a, a very strong medical and, and kind of dental program that they have. Something interesting about Howard University, the first five years of its operation, so it started in 2000, oh, sorry, it started in uh, 1867. They educated over 15,000 freed slaves in the first five years of operation, which is just amazing that uh, that that many people, you know, thinking about educating that many people in that short of a time. And then some notable Howard University alumni, you know, obviously there's a lot of, of very famous people that have come through that program, but uh, a few worth note, uh, Tony Morrison, the uh, Pulitzer and Nobel, Pri- Nobel Prize writer. Thurgood Marshall, the Supreme Court Justice, and then, uh, you know, recently here, uh, Biden's new running mate, Kamala Harris, uh, also was a graduate of Howard University. So I thought that those were some interesting facts that the, uh, the listeners might, might enjoy. John, the other thing that John and Joe both mentioned quite a bit when they're talking about the crisis period, uh, 2008, 2009, was kind of this workout process um, that they both went through with their their clients and, and their their companies. And I thought it'd be helpful for listeners for maybe you to elaborate a little bit on workout process and, and kind of how how things are tackled kind of during these periods of, of crisis. John and Joe each had different experiences in the workout pr- process. Joe, I'll start with Joe. Joe was with Low Enterprises at the time of the crisis in 2008. And he had taken on a project called City Vista, which is a large mixed-use project in Mount Vernon Square. And the project had just delivered that year, right before the crash with Lehman Brothers. They knew that they could see things coming. And my earlier episode with with Mike Balaban got into the origin of that project because Mike had hired Joe at low and so and joe was the the project manager as he talked about so he was and he heard him chuckle about it you know he he had to try to sell 300 plus condominium units uh at the global financial crisis so he was under distress but it's interesting they prevailed and were able to do that because it was such an underserved area of the city and uh fortunately Washington, D.C. did not take the hit quite as much as the rest of the country did on the global crisis. So the government obviously provides a strong baseline for employment and other services. So again, 2008's crisis was a financial crisis that affected the financial industry, didn't quite affect other parts of segments of the marketplace at the time. But still, there were challenges and they did sell the retail to um, to the Edens companies as well during that process. So they were able to to sustain that project. So, but 
But Joe had a, had a real struggle in trying to make that happen. With regard to John Green's situation, he started in 2007 with McFarland Partners with the markets were go-go and everything was great. And he was really excited about the opportunity because they were, you know, in the forefront of some very large relationships with Monument, with JBG. And they had just originated the Jair Lynch relationship and getting that started. And so they were really gangbusters at that time. And then Monument's partner, Lehman Brothers, files bankruptcy then that fall. In 2008, Monument was financed by them, you know, their projects. So that created the market for them. And then the financial situation just cascaded. And so he went from what he thought was a big win uh, into a huge challenge and it reconstituted everything that he did. So he went into the workout mode uh, almost immediately and had to work out his partnerships and let and loans on a lot of his projects. So, you know, John should be given credit for, you know, being able to prevail through that period of time and then go into, uh, you know, the recovery in 2010, 11, 12, coming back out of that. And he stayed with, uh, with McFarland until about three, two, three years ago, building back, you know, what had been a major crisis at that time. So, uh, so both of their perspectives were from, as the ownership perspective, dealing with both debt and equity challenges at that moment. Um, I was in uh, the lending part of the space at the time. So we had some major issues. Actually, I was with a development firm myself at that time, in 2008, but had been through other crises before. So for, I've seen it from all hats. And so it just depends on the challenges that you're dealing with and how you're trying to work things through. But you have to have the long view when you in these situations. And the pandemic is a situation where you have to think long term. Where will we be? And that changes, obviously, every day, depending on the news that occurs. But you have to think long as best as you can. I mean, obviously, there are short-term crises, but uh, if you can prevail long, Usually we come out the other end, uh, usually looking pretty good. Right, right. Well, good, good. That's some uh, good perspective there. And uh, that's all I had today. All right. Well, thank you listeners for uh, participating once again. And we'll look forward to part two. Thank you. <laughs>